All right, let me go ahead and uh, pray, and we'll we'll jump in. Sorry for the late start. Uh, Father, Lord, we just, uh, God, we just want to thank you, first and foremost, that we can be here, we can learn about uh, you, we can study uh, your scripture, we can um, just be here as a family this morning. So we just pray that you would help us to understand this lesson. We love you so much, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all, as always. Um, so we're picking back up on our lesson on cultural Christianity, the unsafe Christian. If this is your first time here on a Sunday, we're basically going through this book here that we're selling. Um, it's not a book study per se, so we're not going chapter by chapter. Someone asked me last week, like, what chapter are you doing this week? We're, we're pulling out concepts, and we're going a little deeper in specific areas for the sake of uh, teaching and learning. So we do sell it. It's a great book. I would highly recommend you grab it. Um, so this session this morning is on civic religion. We titled it socially accepting, but not saved. So Dean and Sarah starts off this chapter talking about this Cincinnati Reds game that he went to. He went to this baseball game and he was kind of blown away at what happened at the seventh inning stretch. Well, what typically happens at the seventh inning stretch of a baseball game? He stretches, right? <laughs> Yeah, sing take me out to the ball game, last call for alcohol, people all go storm the beer lines because they shut it down after the seventh inning. Um, but yeah, singing take me out to the ball game is a tradition that has lasted for a very long time. Well, something interesting happened after 9-11. Um, instead of take me out to the ball game or alongside with, they would start singing God Bless America. And they would do this at every ball game for a while, but now that's been some time since 9-11, uh, only on Sunday games, now they sing this God Bless America, which is interesting why it's during a Sunday baseball game. So here Dean and Sarah is at this baseball game. He's witnessing 45,000 people packed in this stadium singing at the top of their lungs for God to bless America. And what surprised him even more was the thunderous applause that happened after the song. So he's sitting there thinking, man, I've been to Christian conferences that have packed arenas, and I've never heard a crowd cheer so loudly and passionately about God than at this Cincinnati Reds baseball game. Uh, I was listening to uh, this other pastor from Georgia. He was sharing a similar story. He loves the Atlanta Braves, and his wife wanted to treat him with tickets to go see them, you know, play and he doesn't really get to do that it was a sunday game well unfortunately and unbeknownst to them the tickets she got were on pride night oh. <laughs> and so so the, you had to showing up to the game and you don't get to go a lot and now uh, everyone's coming in you know with the rainbow clothes and you're like oh man here we are well it was a sunday game <laughs> seventh inning came and there's 40,000 people singing at the top of their lungs, God bless America, with rainbow gear on. Now, imagine if you're a non-Christian, foreign visitor visiting America for your first time. And visiting America to indoctrinate you into the American culture, of course you have to go to a baseball game, right? <laughs> what would be some things you think would go through your head as you're here at the seventh inning stretch at this uh, baseball game? This is good. This is good. American, true dress, colorful. 
<laughs> Such vibrant clothing. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. What do you think? What do you think the world understands about America when it comes to religion? Why do Muslims not like America maybe so much? What do you think then? Uh huh. So maybe broad brush, as as in fairness, as we're broad brushing things in during these lessons, as far as cultural Christianity as whole, America is looked at as a Christian nation, which is fair, right? What's that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of mockery going on. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, so it's interesting to think through that lens because, you know, maybe there's some confusion there too of, I can't believe Christians believe this stuff and they're celebrating it. This is really interesting. Maybe the foreigner visiting is excited about that, is excited that we are so accepting and this is really what Christianity should look like. Um, so it's just an interesting thing to kind of get your mind thinking about here at this baseball game. But real quick, by way of recap, uh, in the last few weeks, this is our fourth week, I believe, we've been identifying cultural Christianity as a type of Christianity, or not as a type of Christianity, as if there's many, right? We talked about that it's a totally different religion altogether. So cultural Christianity is not a type of Christianity, it's a different religion. So... Cultural Christianity, we've talked about, is not a discipleship issue. Rather, it's evangelistic. <laughs> it's an evangelistic issue, right? Um, because if it's a different type of religion, this isn't an issue of where we like to kind of think of, well, they're just on spiritual baby milk. They need to be discipled further. They just don't know. Versus, no, they're believing in a whole different gospel altogether. And how do we combat that? We combat that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what changes hearts, right? And so we've come to this conclusion because by examining, we've kind of been looking under the hood of what cultural Christians believe. So second week, we looked at works, right? Jeff taught on, on works. And we saw that the cultural Christian embraces a sort of self-righteousness doctrine, right? That by doing good things, they're going to be justified before God. Then last week, which was um, week three, we looked at morality. And this is where a cultural Christian often thinks of themselves as a good person. So by being a good person, they're meriting God's favor, and they're going to merit heaven as a reward, as a result of being a good person. So doing the right things will justify them before God. So this week, we're going to kind of mash the two together. We're going to see what happens when these subjective views of works and morality kind of form a cohesive belief that a culture adopts and values within a society, okay? This is known as civic. It's called civil religion as well. So civic religion, uh, a simplified definition here, is a standard of common beliefs, rituals, or symbols that are embraced by a society at large. So think of it as sort of a, a social cement that kind of unifies a country, right? That promotes patriotism. So we see this displayed all throughout our country, right? We see it in politics, prayers for the country during wartime. The whole country is praying for our troops that are overseas. We see it displayed through symbols. What are some American symbols that you can think of? Flag. Yep, flag. Statue of Liberty. Our money. Our money. Our money. Yeah, cash money. Yeah, cash money. 
I never thought I'd hear those words come out of your mouth, Barry. <laughs> yeah, what about the bald eagle, right? Um, we see it in presidential speeches. Where do we see it in presidential speeches? God bless our nation. God bless America. We hear it in national creeds, like the, the Pledge of Allegiance through songs that we sing at baseball games, like God bless America. So the thing I want you to take away with civic religion when it comes to it is it's man-made. And that's a very fair statement to say. Civic religion is man-made. It's a social construct, but it's often mistaken as biblical Christianity. And this is because civic religion in America was built off of the frameworks of the beliefs of when America was founded. What were those beliefs? Yeah. Yeah. Christianity. So it, it makes sense of thinking, well, man, the framework of our nation was built off of Christianity. You see it interwoven into our justice system everywhere. I mean, in Congress, I'm, we're still putting our hands on the, the Holy Bible, right? Yeah, they used to have the Ten Commandments up at all the courthouses. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. All this is dramatically changing. Um, every year it's changing. Um, so this idea of civic religion, I, I mentioned it was, <clears throat> excuse me, a social construct. It's man-made. Well, this idea, calling it civic religion, was first coined in 1762. And this was by <clears throat> a philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So he sought to define a, a group of religious belief that he believed to be universal among society. He's thinking, how do we unify a country? We do that by coming up with kind of these universal beliefs that everyone can agree with. Um, and, and for the purpose that governments could then uphold them, and then they can use them as a sort of civic virtue, right? So since they were to be universal, he believed they had to be simple. So he created four kind of ingredients, four elements that are essential to civic religion. Any guesses on what these, uh, one of these four ingredients were that make up civil religion? And it has to be easy. Something everyone can believe. Yes, that's number one. The idea of a benevolent deity, like there, there's a God, there's a higher power. That's that's number one. That is a good one. Um, that wasn't one of them, but that is definitely, that could probably fit into some of these. Okay, what else? Yeah, well, no, not so much. There's... <laughs> Drew, I want to give it to you. I really do. <laughs> Although, but there's four specifics here. No family. So we nailed the top one. This is like family feud. Uh, you got the, the top answer, Kathy. The idea of a benevolent deity is number one. Number two is the existence of an afterlife. We all, we all go somewhere when we die. Number three was the reward for what's right and punishment for what's wrong. It's pretty simple to, to absorb, right, and believe. The fourth one is the exclusion of religious intolerance. So the idea of a benevolent deity, the existence of an afterlife, reward for what's right, punishment for what's wrong, and the exclusion of religious intolerance. So these were formed in 1762, very long time ago. Do these four elements that make up civic religion seem familiar to you today in America? Yeah, what, what parts? <laughs> what do you mean by that, Jack? 
everybody's accepted, and no matter what you believe, you're still going to go to heaven. Okay. Anyone else? What what stands out to you that these four things continue to live on today in civic religion when it comes to reward for right? Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. It's a fourth one to me because I mean, only to us who realize that they do uh, Christianity. Yeah. Well, and the fourth one is interesting too because America, we we are accepting of other religions in this country, right? I mean, people can practice their their faith, and that was part of what was beautiful about America and why people wanted to come here. Um, so there's an interesting quote here by, and Sarah, I believe it's on your notes. He said, civic religion is practiced from the high school football locker room where teams incorporate a prayer before the game to the grand stages of Hollywood where you can find a celebrity thanking God during an acceptance speech. It is rampant in American politics and is expected from national leaders, though the reasoning for that falls somewhere between tradition and sentimentality. So with that, I just want to show a brief example of where we typically see this. Now, to be fair, I'm not saying that these people in these videos are cultural Christians, so that's not what this is. But what I really want you to focus on and pay attention to is the amount of people that are here and the cheering and the applause based off what they're saying. Oh, McConaughey. <laughs> We all love McConaughey. Does anyone know what that just meant? That's right. So again, right? So we're not looking at this like, oh, that person's not real. He did this, and especially with celebrities. But so celebrities are a great example in, in sports players because they have the, the spotlight, right? They have the voice. And in one sense, I know Scripture says that even if wrongly, if someone's not even of God, but they are proclaiming his name, he's still using that. So, so we're comfortable with that. We know that. But again, it's, it's, this is America. It's the applause, the cheering, the yay, Jesus Christ, and it's stadiums just packed full of people. And I coupled it with this quote from Dean and Sarah. I, I thought this, this really blends well with what we're looking at here. He says, civic religion promotes a God without any definition and a generic faith that demands and asks nothing of its followers. So let's do a quick exercise using these four elements we talked about from Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, as far as building civic religion. Let's build our own. Let's say that we are a very, very, very scaled down version of America. So all of us in this room, we are the country. And we're like, Jean-Jacques, you, you thought of a really cool thing here. We want to create a civic religion that can be accepted by all, that can be universal, so let's build it. So we're going to do a little this, a little that right there. So let's, first category is, is, is who is this deity, right? What's he, she, it like? Well, I don't want it to be like you. Okay. A grandpa? What do you mean that by that? Loving. Okay, there we go. Loving. This is probably the top answer, right? Loving. Okay. Generous. Accepting of who? Of all. Okay. Is it a male, female, both, whatever you want? Okay. 
gender neutral. Okay. <laughs> what else? What else do we want? What is this God like? Control when it's convenient. Okay. Tolerant, I heard. Tolerant of what? Okay. 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 Okay, cool. So, yeah, we got to add a little justice in here, right? All right, Chrissy, I like that. Justice. We want our God to, to have justice, but on who? Ah, <laughs> uh, touche. I like that. Others. Okay, so what is, okay, so this is kind of who our God is like. This is great. Now, what does it do? How does it interact with society? Blesses our country. Yes, because our God loves America. <laughs> right? <laughs> loves us. Okay. Let's make my own decisions. Okay. Ah. Uh, yeah, let's let's call that the butler, right? <laughs> Comes when you call. When you call. okay, that's a good one. Provide, provider. Yeah, we want our deity to. Anything else? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, great. So this is this is us as a small sample size. This is can we all culturally kind of accept this? Yeah, we can nod our head at that. There's probably gonna be people over time that's like, Well, I don't like gender neutral. I want my God to be, you know, I want my God to be a male. Um, but then that's where this comes in. But it's tolerant, so we can we can we can bring that in. That's okay. So do you see the folly of this? Right. I'm being a little silly with this, but this is what we've built in civic religion in America. This is exactly how it's built on a more grand scale, though. So the the, the issue with this though is that sadly, while we can build this. It, it gets interwoven with biblical Christianity, right? So many are duped into believing that they're Christian based on a generic faith like this when it demands nothing of its followers. So and Sarah has another quote here. For the cultural Christian practicing civic religion it is usually morality and a sense of national pride clothed in Judeo-Christian language, right? I mean, that explains it perfectly. It's morality and a sense of national pride clothed in Judeo-Christian language, Christianese. So a good chicken or the egg question to ponder is, is biblical Christianity influencing American culture or is American culture influencing biblical Christianity? What do you think? Why, why the latter? Yeah. 
it's interesting to see the shift um, even 60 years ago to where we are now, right? And we all see it. We all know it. We all, you know, you, you talk about the decline of America, especially when it comes to our founding beliefs, and it, and it is happening. But it's interesting, though, how influence kind of creeps in that way. Um, so talking about influence, two sociologists, Christian Smith and Melina Lundquist Denton, they wanted to get kind of to the bottom of this in 2005 by doing a, a national survey or a study on the youth of America, teenagers. Now, the majority of these teenagers were people who claimed to be Christian, but it falls right in line with this civic religion concept. Some, they, they weren't questioning like, well, this person said they're Christian, but let's throw them out because I'm not really buying that. They wanted to kind of just take all the, the youth of America in. So thousands and thousands of um, teenagers who claim Christianity to one degree were, were kind of interviewed um, and surveyed. And they, they put this extensive research in a book called The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, Soul Searching. Now, what they uncovered was that what these teens believed, the ones that claimed Christianity especially, were entirely different from biblical Orthodox Christianity. So this kind of sparked an interest right off the bat. And they gave it a name. They put a name to what this belief is. Because like, well, this isn't, this isn't Orthodox Christianity. It's something else, but we don't know what it is, so let's give it a name. And that name they gave it was Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Anyone know what this is? Any, any guesses? You heard it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely pseudo-Christian. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, feel good? Yeah. Well, by doing good things, feel good and kind of becomes your God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. MTD. I, I might abbreviate it a lot just for, so I don't have to say moralistic therapeutic deism every single time. <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's not necessarily a religion in of itself. I mean, we as Christians could probably see it as that, but nobody is calling themselves a moralistic therapeutic deist when you ask what's your religion. They're calling themselves a Christian. And here's why. Because they're a good and nice person, they have morals, and they believe in God. So what else are you other than a Christian in America? You're not a Muslim, right? You're not Buddhist. So what they're finding is, is well, Christian kind of fits the mold because they're happy, they're a nice person, they do good things, they have morals, and they believe in God. Moralistic therapeutic deism. So this is... Really, what they found was it's the undertow and how one, it's kind of like hermeneutics. It's the undertow of how one interprets who Jesus is, what the scriptures say. It's a filter that's basically not allowing them to see the biblical gospel clearly because they have this filter on the whole time. And that filter is comprised of five core beliefs. And that's what these sociologists came up with, these five core beliefs that make up what moralistic therapeutic deism is. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. No big problem there, right? We can, we can agree with that. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So this is where it kind of starts to get off track. So what this view is, is that people see God as more of a cosmic Mr. Rogers, right? Just wants everyone to play in the sandbox well, get along, and be nice to each other. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy 
and to feel good about yourself. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Annie, you hit on that. So this is where the divine butler comes in. When you whistle, he comes to help you. He helps you with your problem, and then he goes away until the next time that you need him. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. We talked about that last week. So what are your thoughts on these five points? Do any stick out to you? Any thoughts on them, on specifically how it plays out in society of our American culture today? Do you see these as valid? Good answer. <laughs> but they have literature, right? Yeah, that's a good point, Drew. I didn't think of that. It seems like it's just the convenience and doesn't make me do anything different than how I want to live, but it comes alongside with how I want to live. Uh-huh. And it's almost a judgment. Who says what, what is happy or what's good? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all just the unconscious person what they're doing. That's... Yeah. There's no responsibility. No responsibility? I don't know. Yeah. Let's let's talk about why 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 do you think and this is I don't have the answer to this, this is not a loaded question but why do you think especially with the American God where is this niceness coming from where do you think that's coming from why people are just like God wants us to be nice he wants me to be happy And we hear that everywhere. Yeah. Right? I think I learned it in Sunday school. We didn't talk about sin. Yeah. Yeah. John John three sixteen, right? A lot of people know that verse. Because so many people want to separate themselves and go away from that like the Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big time. Well, it is hunting season, so yeah. someone might choose the deer. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, Nick. God wants me to be happy, and I want to be nice to each other. So I'm still kind of wondering, what would that thing 
Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get there. There there's multiple. It's not one thing, right? But it's it's a good thing to think about because we are always changing. Culture, society, human nature, we are constantly changing. And that's the beauty of a God who doesn't ever change and the importance of why we we cling to his holy word because that never changes. Um, the interesting thing about these these kind of five points, a God exists who created and ordered the world, watches over human life. God wants people to be good, nice and fair. The, the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good. God does not need to be involved with one's life except when, when you need him. And he's excited about that, right? He's just waiting until he can help you again and he jumps in. And good people go to heaven when they die. There's no, there's no talk of sin. There's no talk of holiness. There's no talk of Jesus. There's no talk of justification. Have you guys heard of the 11th commandment? Thou shalt be nice. Yep. It's always kind of, it's kind of a joke, but it's true. I mean, it, people live as if that is, that is one of the commandments. Yeah, Glory. Do you think like all these things, though, where did it come from? Like, I feel like it came from Christianity, um, from the Bible. Mm -hmm. When you look at other cultures, there's a lot of values that we are appalled at. Yeah. Yeah. And without clarity, right? Like, does God help people in the Bible? Yes. Are we called to love our neighbors and our brothers and sisters? No. Chrissy, yeah. That's a really good point, Chrissy. Yeah. So it's moralistic therapeutic deism. It's moralistic because faith, faith is about being a good person. It's faith in being a good person, being nice in society. It's therapeutic because faith's purpose is to help me, right? It, it's for me to have a healthy, healthy and happy life. Um, it's, you know, Jesus is there for me to make me happy. Church is about me. So church should supply my needs. And the stories of the Bible are about me. So all the Goliaths that are in my, my, my life this week, God can give me a David to slay those, right? This is where we start to see it in, in even how scripture is taught and preached inside of churches to where everything around you, it's therapeutic for you, revolves around you. 
And it's deism because it obviously involves God and how he reacts with us. So when we're talking about where did this come from, they were kind of looking into this of, of why is this exploding amongst the culture of our youth? It wasn't so much that these teenagers were creating a new way of belief, right? It wasn't as if they were kind of like a cult just creating a new system of belief and it was just these teenagers that were believing it. No, it was what they saw reflected is what they concluded. It was what they saw reflected in the lives of their parents, the church, and their pastors. One scholar from Princeton wrote, the problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching the youth badly, but that we are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching them what we really believe. Namely, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires very little, and the church is a helpful institution filled with nice people. I think we can see all three of those things. And Sarah writes, the word Christian in and of itself implies Christ, and notice that he is missing entirely from the description of this new American religion of moral deism. Many people who are comfortable with the idea of God and familiar with some image of Jesus have no concept of what the gospel of Christ actually is. There's a perception amongst cultural Christians that the gospel is for more extreme, perhaps born-again people. Mainstream cultural Christians aren't wrapped up in promoting some kind of gospel message. Here's the kicker. They are simply trying to be nice to others, pursue their idea of personal happiness, pray when something bad happens, and rest in the belief that they are going to heaven after they die. And where this all goes wrong, the goal of Christianity is not happiness, but it's what? Holiness. That's where the road splits, right? The goal of Christianity is not happiness, it's holiness. We're to, to live holy lives. And that's why God wants us separate from the world in that sense, right? We want to be set apart. That's what it means to be holy. So what we've seen here in moralistic therapeutic deism is really a very obscure idea of God and what the scriptures teach. But there's another type that he talks about. He says those who acknowledge Jesus, that say they love Jesus, and may even have great familiar, familiarity with the Bible, and they participate in a local church, what do we do with those? And he said that these would be more of a Jesus admiring versus Jesus following type of Christian. Someone who admires Jesus. So in this video we watched, there was a lot of, you know, God, I thank God. We, we did hear some, I thank God, but not just God, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I don't really need to go to church, though, because Jesus and I are good, but I'm just trying to live like him every day. I'm just trying to love people because that's what he wants and um, be like Jesus to everybody. Jesus admiring versus Jesus following. So when Sarah uses these examples of um, the disciples in, and Jesus, right, who the disciples thought Jesus would be as a Messiah, once they kind of got the news, like, oh, this is the Messiah, he's saying he's the Messiah, they initially thought he was going to take over, right, and, and save them from Roman rule, save them from everything else in that moment. He's here now. Praise God, and he's going to save us, our nation, protect us, and he's going to rule victorious, right? And to their credit, they didn't know the story then. They were confused. So then now, instead of seeing him rule and reign and become victorious, they instead saw him die and stand trial, get the guilty verdict from both the Romans and the Jews, get crucified, die, be buried, and then they saw him rise again. So you can imagine the confusion there, but we, we get the whole story, right? 
we have the complete Bibles that we can study from and read. So there really is no justification that we should have of misunderstanding that Jesus is not here to make you happy, healthy, wealthy, but he's here for a purpose, and that mission is clear in Scripture. On this, and Sarah writes, we have a completed Bible, and we know the end of the story. But how often are we looking for a king who exemplifies and grants earthly decorations of success? In the Jesus of the Bible, though, we find instead a call to die. Self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible. No matter how much they claim they love Jesus, in his own words, Jesus tells us what it looks like to love him. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Many people want the good luck charm Jesus, not the sacrificial lamb of God whose death requires action. Thoughts on that? It makes me think of the law, right? Like, you know, people say if if we all obeyed the law, we wouldn't have to lock our doors at night, right? The law leads to happiness and peace. But the problem is, is we can't obey it. What are your other thoughts, specifically as we're talking here about this idea of acknowledging Jesus, saying we love Jesus, we have great familiarity with the scriptures, but we're missing what it means to follow Jesus, what that call is. And then Sarah's talking about the call to die, right? When civic religion's like, it's a call to live now by bringing him into my life. Thoughts on this? I think this is wrapping these topics are really coupling because if we're honest, that's all of us at different points. I want Jesus to love what I love and do what I believe in my everyday life. That's what people will tell me and the ones that I don't feel that. So all of this is a movement Humble us and maybe love others and engage in these conversations because that's 
So I think that's the lens that all of it is heard through. It's like, that's not me and them. Yeah. Yeah. This is a moralistic therapeutic deism is this is not just touching the topic of cultural Christianity in, in the scope of the, the degree that we're talking about of like they're not even saved. This is a different religion. This creeps into the church with saved people all the time just as well. It's being taught by preachers a lot when they're expounding the word of God. Um, you know, you can imagine the temptation as a pastor to want to make their congregation happy because it means more people are going to come. They're going to faithfully give, you know, they're going to feel emotionally charged. And, and that's great. I want them walking out these doors, just feeling hyped up because I want them to come back next week and I want them to be happy genuinely. Yeah, Gloria. When you think about the very core of the interesting because we go back to this right because the core of the gospel is jesus saying you know put down your fishing nets follow me you can bury you can bury the dead later follow me now it's time let's go drop everything leave your life and follow me that's hard to do when you're your god right that's counting the cost and and that's where then it said uh, how many of you heard the phrase that you're going to miss heaven by 18 inches right what does that mean? Barry, what does it mean? From the head to the heart. That's right. That's right. So especially with when we look at like the Jews uh, are a great example because of all the religions, the, the Jews are the closest. If we were to do, a, remember our morality scale, right, we did last time? If we were to look at who's the closest to just getting it right about God, it would be the Jews. They believe in Yahweh, the same God we do, compared to all these other religions where it's just it just goes way off the rails. And even they, if they do not believe in Christ as their Messiah, they go to hell. And so it's interesting to wrap our minds around this concept that just like the morality scale where, you know, Mother Teresa is here. I'm not quite Mother Teresa, but I'm somewhere in the middle, but I'm definitely not Hitler. So if God's grading on a curve, I'm getting in. It's the same thing when it comes to these religions that, well, man, the Israelites, they... It's the same God, right? They're close. But then that's where this concept comes in of they're going to miss heaven by 18 inches, which means that they have the head knowledge. They have the Old Testament writings. They're learning about God, but they're missing it in their heart. They're missing and accepting and acknowledging who Christ really, truly was. So I think this is a good saying that can really relate to civic religion today is we have knowledge of God. A lot of people would say they believe in God or they think God exists. We're going to sing about God in a baseball stadium. We're going to cheer. If someone's standing up accepting an award and they're like, God did this, we're going to clap. We're going to scream. We're going to say, amen. That is so good for you. But our hearts are far, far, far from the true Messiah. And we're not living for the true Messiah as he exemplified in his life, right? I'm not here to overthrow the Roman government right now. I'm here to die. What? Well, where are you going to go? <laughs> Aren't you? Isn't the Messiah supposed to come here and save us? So, 
18 inches. And that's something, you know, that we can ask ourselves just as much uh, to be challenged with this week is I may have it in here, but what am I missing here in, in my own walk? Any last thoughts on this before I uh, excuse us here and pray? Yeah. I was just saying that the one side for use is pride Okay. Yeah, like giving up your life to follow someone else and to say that I'm going to, his will, not mine. That's humbling, right? Any other last thought? What's that? I'm responsible to somebody else. Yeah, that's a big one. I'm no longer the captain of my, my vessel here. Okay, well, let me pray next week. We're going to get into, so what we've been doing now is we kind of laid the under the hood, what are some of these doctrines, beliefs of cultural Christianity? Uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> morality, works, civic religion. Now we're going to get into kind of a new topic. Uh, it's going to be two weeks, and we're going to be talking about barriers now, barriers to reaching cultural Christians. Why is it so hard and difficult compared to evangelizing like a Mormon? for example, right, um, where we can, we can really go at them with the gospel and the facts, but yet there's barriers to reaching cultural Christians. So next week we're going to be talking about common obstacles, uh, so it'll be a good lesson. Um, well, let me pray and get out of here. Again, if one of you or a few of you can help pick up chairs, I'll roll a card in here. That'd be fantastic. So thanks. Uh, Father, Lord, we just, um, this is humbling. And, and just as Kelly had said, God, I just pray that you would search our own hearts with this very topic of moral therapeutic deism, where we are trying to sit on your throne. And God, we are prone to doing this even as your children. Lord, forgive us for the times that we do this. And I pray that here at Grace Christian Fellowship, we are getting a lot of knowledge. Praise God for that. We are getting sound teaching. But Lord, we too can become prideful with that. And we can prevent it from really sinking into our hearts, especially if it's a topic that we're afraid to broach or maybe that it's going to expose some sin in our lives. Lord, we just thank you that this exposes why we need Jesus, why all of us need Jesus, why we need the gospel every single day. And Lord, I just pray that you would, even through this lesson, that this would grow us in, in how we look to disciple others, but how we look to disciple even ourselves. Um, so God, have your mercy on us. Uh, we pray for the, the service here this morning, singing as a family and hearing the word from Jeff. We pray, God, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.